Well, good evening, church. It's good to see you guys. I'm going to send our kindergarten through fifth graders to children's worship. You can head with Miss Katie or head ahead of Miss Katie. Yeah, they're going full speed. You, or they just don't want to hear me talk. I don't know what it is. So, hey, uh, good to spend some time with you tonight. Um, before we uh, jump into our study in the scriptures, I, I do want to just uh, make mention of something practically, logistically. Well, two things. Uh, one is we are now. Uh, just a couple more weeks of Saturday night services before we move to just Sunday for the summer uh, and kind of see what happens there. And so I uh, love you joining us at 6. Do that, uh, but on Memorial Day weekend, come on Sunday. Don't, uh, don't join us then uh, or you will be alone, right? You, or there'll be three of you and you won't know what you're doing. Uh, so, which is fine. Have some fun with that, I guess. Um, the second thing is this weekend, tomorrow, it's Mother's Day, uh, kind of a special day on our calendar. In fact, historically, in the context of the church, Mother's Day is the second highest attended day of the year. It supersedes Christmas Eve most places, uh, only short of Easter because most moms say come to church as a way to uh, drag their kids who don't want to come uh, to church. But coincidentally, Father's Day is actually a really poorly attended Sunday. Guys, you schlubs, uh, you're pathetic. I, anyways, just... Just a note, uh, hey, historically, here's what we've done. For Mother's Day, uh, we, we want to give like some small gift as a church and just a, a small token of appreciation and what it means to be a mom. Uh, so we've, we've normally done a carnation and given you a flower. Uh, I'm not huge on flowers, but that's, that's really not the biggest reason for this. Uh, we wanted to try to bless you moms this year with something uh, that we felt like was lasting as well as something that was uh, energizing into your spiritual walk in life. And so uh, we got some books for you. Uh, in fact, this book is called Disciplines of a Godly Woman. It's written by a lady named Barbara Hughes. Her husband uh, is a man named Kent Hughes and writes a book called Disciplines of the Godly Man. Uh, we're reading it in our leadership team right now. It's phenomenal. Teaser alert, Father's Day's in a month, right? I don't know what you'll get, but it probably looks like this. Uh, in that, it'll be harder for you because, again, men who don't want to be here on Father's Day also don't want to read books, but we're going to challenge you to do so. Uh, in the meantime, ladies, uh, I think you should grab this. Uh, it is a gift to you for Mother's Day. We have them sitting right on the back on your way out, and so we're going to try to remind you to take one as you leave tonight uh, uh, for all of you who identify as a mom, right? At least uh, if you have been a mom, are a mom, uh, want to read a book, this is an opportunity uh, just to hopefully be a blessing to your soul uh, and use that as a way to encourage you this Mother's Day. All right? Amen? Feeling good? Let's grab our Bibles. Go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in the pew in front of you. It's a thousand, page 1081, 1082, right in that neighborhood as we continue our series in the Gospel of John. And so uh, let, me, let me just kind of really give you a broad overview and a quick update of where we're at as we work through John chapter 18 tonight. Uh, we have... Three chapters left in the Gospel of John. 
We've been in the Gospel of John for this being month five now. Uh, Spent a lot of time slowly walking through it, and the intention is to spend four more weekends in the Gospel of John. So 18, 19, 20, 21, we're going to handle them a chapter at a time. The warning is this. Uh, By my count, there's like 12 to 15 sermons in those four chapters. Uh, We're going to reduce them into four, which means that we're going to kind of grow past some things, kind of move quickly through some things. Uh, we'll, we'll probably come back and revisit this uh, area of text more than once, uh, hopefully, in my time here, if the Lord allows that to be the case. But uh, for the sake of kind of what we did in this series, uh, we want to move kind of quickly through them because all along, here's, here's been the goal and the emphasis as we've walked through the Gospel of John, is we wanted to give you in the survey sense the big picture of what John intended us to know as he writes the gospel according to John. The good news of Jesus Christ according to John uh, is this, that you and I would know that Jesus is the Son of God and in believing you would have life in his name. And so the points of emphasis are always going to be about who Jesus is, the giver of life, who Jesus is, the one who brings us into to eternal life through his life, his work, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. And so uh, in that, I want to walk us through all of John 18, uh, rather quickly kind of surmise what's going on here, and then just kind of zoom in on one verse in particular and draw some things out of that. And so uh, I want to just begin with you. We're going to do a little more reading than usual tonight. Uh, You can handle that. And follow along with me in the text as we kind of watch what happens. Now, If you weren't here last week or you don't remember, uh, John 17, Jesus has closed out his final interaction with his disciples uh, in what we knew as the upper room discourse. Jesus spends chapters, John has recorded, talking to his disciples, comforting them and instructing them before he's going to head to the cross, uh, reminding them that they should not let their hearts be troubled and that they should trust that though in a little while he's going to go where they can can't come, that there will be a helper that he is sending, and that it's ultimately better for them that he goes than it would be had he stayed. And so uh, they're kind of grappling with this and dealing with this, and Jesus closes that out in John 17, a passage that is known in church circles as the high priestly prayer. Jesus giving a deeply theological prayer and finishing that, going from his relationship with the Father to his relationship with the disciples to concluding with his relationship with us and a prayer that we would be a people who are united, one together in Christ, that the foundation of who we are would be the value of Jesus uniting us. Out of that, him and his disciples leave this upper room for the final time to end what is uh, Jesus' earthly ministry leading into his arrest. So pick up with me, let's, let's read John chapter 18, verse 1, and, and we'll just kind of walk through this chapter and watch what happens together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And so when they said, when he said to them, I am, now they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now let me just pause there. Here's, here's what's happened. Uh, we've noted that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes these figure of speech statements. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And through this, Jesus several times begins these statements with the phrase, I am. Am. Now, that bore an incredible significance in the Jewish culture because ultimately that leads back to an interaction way back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is being called by God to lead the people out of Egypt. And he says, well, when I go to the people and say, this guy in a bush told me that we're getting out of here, who am I going to say sent me? And God answers and says, I am who I am. You tell him. I am sent you. The very name foundational to God was that I don't need to be defined by any other standard. I am. All standards come from me as God. You use that as the defining moment, defining standard of all the rest of creation. And so when Jesus is asked who he is, frequently John's going to remember him saying, I am. Am. And the people who are against Jesus are, are really rebel against this from the get-go and it just intensely escalates more and more and more that they would disapprove of the idea that Jesus is equating himself with God. Now, what's really fascinating about this, I want you to just kind of picture this scene with me for a second because I read this this week and thought, like how tragically comical this is that Judas along with a cohort of Romans show up given by the scribes and the Pharisees coming to arrest and get rid of this Jesus that they are hell bent on putting to death and they say uh, we are looking for Jesus the Nazarene and he says I am now some of your versions might say I am he that he is in italicized which means they're just implied there uh, the verbal word of Jesus is I am and as he claims himself to be God, the Bible says that they drew back and fell to the ground. His words in power and authority knocked him down to the ground. And there, without the ability to even rise up, they uh, kind of dust themselves off. And, and you think, like, I don't know, that, that ought to, like, get you. Right? You ought to be like, oh, hang on a second. I'm not sure I signed up for this, right? Like, I'm just a Roman soldier. Like, there's something to this guy. And yet, it doesn't deter them. Therefore, again, he asked, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He answered and said, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these go on their way. You see, uh, Jesus still uh, protecting his disciples who are with him. And then it says this was to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I have not lost one. Jesus says, let them go on their own way. Now, Simon Peter, who if you know a little bit about uh, your gospel accounts, you know that Peter is always kind of the one that sort of 
Acts first and thinks second. It says that Peter then having a sword drew it and he struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Melchus. Now, uh, in this whole interaction, you still see the kind of confused and bewildered nature of the disciples of Jesus because they, they think, okay, well, what do we do about this? Uh, in fact, if you remember in this interaction just a couple chapters ago, uh, Peter maybe is feeling some duty, obligation, or pride to what he said earlier, which was all of these others will leave you, but I never will. To which Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And so Peter, probably running through his head, is going, oh man, Jesus doesn't trust me. I could, maybe I can do something. He takes it, he cuts, and he, apparently he's not like the greatest of soldiers, right? Because he just gets the guy's ear. And then the, uh, the scriptures tell us, actually, in another gospel account, that Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on, which is also kind of cool. Like, just fix that thing real quick. And then he looks at Peter and says, Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, uh, this another. This is in that twelve to fifteen. It's not today's sermon because I want to keep moving. But uh, the cup that Jesus talks about here is a significant one. In fact, John uh, really abbreviates. We've said that way, the way he writes his gospel is to kind of complement the other gospel writers. And so uh, when he includes or doesn't include details, it's often to kind of weave together things that others didn't include and kind of move over things that others spent a long time on. And so if you remember, the other gospel accounts uh, spend a great deal of detail about Jesus in this garden, the garden of Gethsemane, praying, and he's praying that if God would will, he would let this cup pass from me. And, and then here, uh, he looks at Peter and says, shall I not drink this cup which the Father has given me? Now, the, the cup here is not just death, right? Like for I think, I think in a lot of Christian circles, we believe that he's just talking about his death on the cross. However, it would be misrepresenting and really outside of the truth of Scripture and the consistent call of Scripture to know what this cup is. In fact, uh, the prophet of Jeremiah describes it. In Jeremiah 25, God's speaking and says this, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of my wrath, from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. That's not an unusual moment in prophecy consistently throughout the scripture uh, from start to finish. Revelation chapter 14 says the same thing, that the cup is the cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus looking at Peter is going, not only am I going to the cross, but not only do you not understand that's where I'm heading, but also I'm going there to take on the wrath of God for you and I, shall I not drink this cup? Now, Scripture goes on, continues on through chapter 18. Jesus gets dragged before the Jewish leaders and priests and held in a kind of mock trial. And, and uh, we're not going to read that. I want to pick up a little bit later in this. But during that time, many uh, things are happening uh, that Jesus has already foretold. Uh, Peter's going to deny him three times, just as Jesus said. Uh, and then out of this, the high priests decide that they can now deliver Jesus over to the Romans to be killed. We'll talk about that in just a second, but pick up with me in verse 28 and watch how the story continues. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas, that's the high priest among the Jews, to the praetorium. And it was early. 
early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. The strange irony in all of this is that the Jewish leaders who are putting Jesus to death, seeking to murder him for the sake of their continued power and peace in the Jewish empire, uh, was that they would do so in such a religious hypocrisy that they wouldn't enter into the Roman praetorium where Pilate stood, but they meet him on the outside so that they could keep their ceremonially clean presentation to go eat Passover later that day as they prepare to have the Savior of the world murdered. It says, therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's not an accusation. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. And so again, in the same hypocrisy, they deliver him over to Pontius Pilate to be killed. Now, let me just kind of give you a quick little bit of background about who Pilate is, as described in the scriptures. Pilate's uh, the governor of the Roman province where Judea and Jerusalem reside. And so uh, you can kind of, kind of think of what's going on in the first century uh, in Judea as a land that is both governed by Jews, held in Jewish authority, but ultimately that served as a kind of puppet government so long as it placated Rome. And so Pilate's role and his job was to oversee all of Judea for the sake of collecting Roman taxes and keeping Roman peace. And so Pilate's relationship with the chief priests and the Jewish leaders of that time was one that was really uh, good so long as the peace was being kept and so long as the taxes were flowing in. And so frequently Pilate's going to look to do things that would appease the Jewish leadership and keep the Jews at rest and at bay, especially in the particular time of year that this happens to be, which is the day before Passover. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that Jews from all over the world were migrating into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at the temple. And so it was a day of intense kind of population density. Everybody's on top of one another. Tensions are high. It includes a whole bunch of people who really, really despise the Roman Empire. And, and they really can't stand the idea that they are under harsh, oppressive Roman rule. They really can't stand the idea that they pay uh, all of their wage living in poverty in Roman taxes. And they're frustrated about it. And they're seeking out a Messiah in particular who would overthrow this Roman rule, create rebellion, and free their people. And so Pilate serves as a Roman simply to squash that. Keep that at bay. Do what it takes to make things peaceful and working well. And so his questions, probably more than anything, I think it's, it's wise for us to recognize, is he's going to bring Jesus to trial, are motivated by this. He's, he's not a Jew. He's a Roman. He's, he's not all that interested in Jesus, but he's certainly interested on whether or not executing somebody is going to maintain the peace or is going to incite insurrection. Right? So, so Pilate 
begins to kind of push away from the Jewish chief priests and leaders because who is this guy? I'm not going to kill somebody who I don't know on the day of Passover and create more of a problem for Rome than I already have. And then in that, they're, they're going to say, hey, listen, uh, this guy is obviously a problem. We wouldn't have brought him to you otherwise. In other words, we're serving you, O Pilate, right? In this, in this pretense of religious hypocrisy, he needs to die and we can't kill him according to our law. So won't you do this for us? Now, Pilate, in this wisdom, uh, knows that he can put to death any non-Roman anytime he wants. Uh, this, is, this is important for us to kind of grasp and remember as we think of Pilate as judge and jury of Jesus that, that ultimately uh, don't think too deeply about his role in the whole context it, because you're going to see like maybe he has some reservations about it. Maybe there's some, there's some interactions with his wife that causes this. But ultimately, in Rome, you were either a Roman citizen or you were not. And if you were not, you had no inalienable rights. You were not all that important. Jesus was simply a problem to be dealt with until something really interesting happens in this interaction. Watch how it goes on. It says, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. And he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Now Pilate answered and said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me, what have you done? Jesus answered, and this is, this is where I want to spend the rest of our time tonight, just on this simple answer of Jesus, because he reveals something significant. He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate answered, said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Ironically, Pilate finishes the interaction with the rhetorical question, what is truth? I want you to draw back to verse 36. Jesus says this twice. My kingdom is not of this world. And then he reiterates this. My kingdom is not of this realm. Uh, Jesus frequently, according to the other gospel writers, talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In John, uh, he only recalls him doing this in a couple different times. The other interaction is in John chapter 3. If you remember, uh, Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That uh, Ultimately, Jesus over and over and over again is going to refer to this idea that those who know him are a part of his kingdom. And so, uh, the, here in his trial before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and so I want to just kind of contemplate this question for a couple minutes tonight. What's that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world? My kingdom is not of this realm. But I think there's a couple of things we can conclude. Here's, here's the first, and I think this was important then tangibly in what Jesus is answering to Pilate, and it's important for us today. It means that Jesus did not and he does not exist 
for our earthly ease and benefit. Right? Here, here was the massive, overwhelming desire of the populace at the time of Jesus regarding Jesus as the Messiah. That the Messiah was one who would come and he would overthrow Roman rule and free the Jews. This was the idea. In fact, uh, Jesus Christ, the word Christ, it, it literally is the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one. The most common perception of what Jesus was was one who was going to come and fix things for the Jews, was going to come and get rid of Roman rule. This is why uh, they're so excited when Jesus can do miraculous signs and wonders, right? That this is a Jesus who can raise people from the dead. This is a Jesus who can heal people. This is a Jesus who can restore sight to the blind. This is a Jesus who can calm the storm. And imagine the people just kind of expecting that this sort of power and this sort of authority could be weaponized for the use of overthrowing Rome. If he can calm the storm, certainly he could bring the storm. If he can raise the dead, certainly he could kill. If he can heal somebody's ear that gets cut off, I mean, he's good in the triage unit, right? Like this guy's got some stuff that could be useful. And Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over. Jesus' interaction with Pilate then was to say that the kingdom of God, my role as the Messiah, is not for earthly ease, for earthly gain, or for earthly benefit. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. And, and the thing that's so crazy about that, you fast forward 2,000 years, and you watch as one of the most common forms of, of Christianity or disguised as Christianity are these guys that are sitting on TV every Sunday morning and they're proclaiming that Jesus exists to make you healthy and wealthy and happy and fix all of the problems in your life. And the reality is that over and over and over again, Jesus is going to say, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not about the here and now. It's not about you getting all the things you want right now. It is bigger than that. It's beyond that. It's over that. My kingdom's of a different realm. Now, here's the question then. If Jesus doesn't promise us our best life now, if, if Jesus doesn't promise to make things better for you on this earth, if Jesus doesn't promise you prosperity and all of that other garbage, then why is he a king worthy of our worship in the first place? Right? Uh, and, and here, I think, is where the scripture would take us to and answer this question. Uh, the second, second thing about Jesus being a king not of this realm or not of this world, Paul, Paul describes it this way, uh, means that in Christ, you and I are citizens of heaven. Paul says in Philippians 3, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That you and I are meant to be serving a heavenly king existing, knowing that we belong to a heavenly kingdom. That eternal life is citizenship first and foremost in heaven, not just in this world. Now, uh, let me tell you a story. Uh, years ago, in fact, is is like 2012, so almost 10 years ago now, I was working for a church in Michigan, uh, and we had this opportunity. We were going to partner with a missionary uh, in Haiti. 
And so we decided that we would take, uh, me and another guy, take a flight down to Haiti to kind of see what this mission organization was doing, understand how they were going about things and if they were worth partnering. And so uh, we get on a plane, we fly down into Haiti. Now, uh, just, just before that, Haiti was rocked, you may remember this, with just a massive earthquake, like one of the, the biggest earthquakes in the history of uh, like modern recordings, uh, and it, its epicenter was in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, which is the capital city of Haiti. And, and Haiti's infrastructure and Haiti as a city was, was or as a country, was poor, debilitated, and, and really facing a lot of struggles before this, and then it just flattened everything, desolated the whole, the whole country. And, and so out of this, anybody that survived, actually, they just, they just traveled out of the city. And they just migrated down one major highway through the island until they found a place that someone else wasn't living. And they stopped there and set up camps. No running water, no electricity, no indoor plumbing, just, just trying to somehow survive. The whole country is just, is just broken and desolate. Even now, 10 years after that, uh, it's one of the poorest countries in the entire Western Hemisphere. And so we fly in, the airport is just a disaster. It's like kind of half built. Uh, you actually get off the plane like outside, which is, and like a big plane, and you're like, man, this is sketchy, right? And, and so you're kind of working through this maze of stuff to get your bags, and we meet this local missionary who's there, and, and he seems like this is totally normal, and I'm like, man, we're going to get killed in this place. And uh, as we get ready to get our bags, uh, there is this huge billboard banner in the airport, and it's got this guy who has like 17 gold chains, and he's got, uh, he's got grills, you know, like, so his teeth aren't teeth. His teeth are like gold teeth, and he's got like these gold braces on to like flaunt his wealth. And that's like a, that's like a thing some of you just wouldn't understand. Uh, it doesn't matter. Here's, here's the thing. I was like, who's that guy? And the local missionary goes, oh, that's Sweet Nicky. I was like, what's Sweet Nicky do? He's like, well, Sweet Nicky was a hip-hop artist uh, but now he's our president. I said, you're, you're president? <laughs> he said, yeah, the, uh, you know, he ran for president and they elected him as the president. Sweet Nikki, the rap artist. And, and you know what? Like the first thing that went through my mind, kind of watching this just kind of disaster of a country was, oh my goodness, I'm glad I don't live here. Right? And, and the reality was there was this kind of ease and this comfort in knowing that three days from then, I was going to get back on a plane and I was going to fly away from this place and I didn't ever have to worry about it again. Because though sweet Nicky was president, he wasn't my president. Right? And, and so here's, here's my point in all of this. When your citizenship is somewhere else, it provides an ease and a comfort when the things around you are completely broken, right? Like my point is this, uh, that it ought to be comforting to us that our citizenship is in heaven when our last two presidents has been a pretty immoral TV star and a guy that's like real life weekend at Bernie's, right? Like so in that, we ought to have some joy and some comfort in the idea that we aren't first and foremost citizens here our citizenship is in heaven that whatever it might be around here I'm not saying don't be concerned about it I'm just saying that ought not ruin your day because your citizenship 
is in heaven and you eagerly await Jesus Christ. Now, let's finish with this then. If our citizenship is in heaven, how do we interact here? What do we do now? If, if we're lucky, uh, if I'm as lucky as your dad, I got 55 years left. I'm probably not that lucky. If I am, sweet. If I get four, okay. If I don't make it out of tonight, my citizenship is in heaven. I go home. But for the bulk of us, you will live past today on this earth. What do you do? Well, watch how Jesus continues on. You say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born And this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here's the last thing that it means when Jesus is my kingdom is not of this world. That you and I are in this world and our role is to, like Jesus, testify to the truth. In fact, just the chapter before, as Jesus was praying, he notes that the world is not going to love you all the time. The world's not going to be happy with you. You aren't of this world, and so the world will hate you. And yet, his prayer is not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept from the evil one. And so, we testify to the truth of Jesus from within this world. Here's, here's the final question. Then. What does it mean to be in the world as a citizen of heaven, but here testifying to the truth of Jesus. And I, I got three things it's not and one thing it is. And I, I want to say them carefully because I, I feel like they might offend you. And they're not, well, I feel like they might offend you. I was going to say they're not meant to. They kind of are meant to. All right, here's, here's three things that it, it means to be a citizen of heaven that it ought not mean for our interaction in this world first is that you're not vacationing here. Uh, and and here's, what, here's what I mean by that when I use that phrase. Um, I've been on a couple, Whitney and I have been fortunate enough a couple different times to go on cruises. Anybody been on a cruise before? <laughs> just, just, so you guys are like, I don't like boats, right? Uh, it doesn't feel like a boat. It feels like a massive, massive buffet. Uh, there are meals and food everywhere all the time, like, I, th- I just feel like cruises should be renamed gluttony, right? That's, that's all it is. In fact, uh, that's one thing that I look forward to on a cruise. I eat 13 to 20 soft-serve ice cream cones every day. Six-day cruise. I, once, we went on, shortly after I was married, I went on a seven-day cruise. I gained 11 pounds. I, I'm just going, right? And, and I'm enjoying myself. And here's the thing. They sit you down at dinner. It's wonderful. The waiter comes and he asks you what you want. There's a selection of food. And I order two dinners. All right? I say, I want this and I want this. And, and here's the thing. Like, I have no problem being gluttonous. I have no problem being obnoxious. I have no problem being self-centered. Why? Because I'm on vacation. It's about me. Here's here's the thing, though. I I think you watch and you witness believers, and I think if we're being real honest about ourselves, there's times where we act as believers in this world like like we have some 
right to and some obnoxious need to and some gluttonous idea that we're going to just fill up and enjoy selfishly all of the things that we want in this world and who cares about anything else and who cares about anybody else because I'm in Christ and so, so what? And, and so in this, right, Jesus says, I, I came not to enjoy myself in all of the selfish desires and selfish needs and selfish wants of my life. I came as a citizen of heaven. I came, my kingdom is not of this world, but I'm going to testify to the truth. So you're not vacationing. The second thing, you're not, you're not merely an immigrant. And, and I'll define that in two ways. I, th- I think there's two things that happens in immigration uh, in, in our context, in our country often, is that the tendency is either that an immigrant isolates, so, so you come from another culture, another country, and you just don't interact with the world. You, you kind of sit in your own segregated box, and you're, you're away from everything, and there's a language barrier, there's a culture barrier, and so you just kind of do your own thing. And so you watch as Christians all across this country just sort of fill up their own little clicky circles and never interact with people who don't know Christ. Kind of hard to testify to the truth when you don't ever interact with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Amen? And, and the second thing, that happens, if, if that's not the case, is uh, immigrants just assimilate, right? And, and they just blend themselves right into the culture. And you just work really hard to look just like the world. And, and the thing is, what happens is for many Christians, belief just stops here and all of the rest of your life is completely indistinguishable from a world whose citizenship is here, who has no heavenly hope, who is not focused on Christ. And so no one looks at you as someone who's testifying to the truth because you just look just like everybody else. Amen? So you're not vacationing, and you're not, not merely an immigrant. Now here's, here's the sensitive one, and so let me be real careful in the way I say this. You're also not a colonist, right? So um, colonialism is the idea that we, uh, along with many other European countries, went somewhere else and just put our culture on the other place, right? We drove them out, kind of took over, made it ours, set them on reservations, that kind of thing, right? Here's, Here's the idea behind this. You and I are not going to build out and testify to Christ in this world by forcing it upon people. You're not going to legislate it on people. You're not going to push people into a relationship with Christ through any sort of working of yours outside of real faith in Jesus Christ. Now that does not mean that there's not certain governments and there's not certain places and there's not certain things and there's not certain conditions that are more fertile to somebody coming to know Jesus. So I'm not saying we shouldn't care about those things. I'm not saying you shouldn't be passionate about those things. I'm not saying that they don't matter. I'm just saying that first and foremost, our goal has to be as citizens of heaven to see testifying to the truth of Christ as superseding all. That those who hear his voice know truth. So if, if it's not a vacationer and it's not just an immigrant and it's not just a colonist, what is it? Well, here's how Paul says it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll, we'll finish with this and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven in this world? It means that you and I are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors on behalf of his kingdom, ambassadors for the king. It means that you and I exist in this world, and we exist not to represent ourselves, we exist to represent him. An an embassy, if, if you don't know this, kind of let me make sure we define this word. An embassy is a piece of land or a building that is manned by somebody in a foreign country. And so there's United States embassies in other countries all across the world. And inside of that embassy is sovereign territory that belongs to the United States of America. And in that embassy, it's led by a person called an ambassador. And their role in the country that they exist in is to represent the interests of the United States of America. And so when when Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ, he means it this way. That you and I reside in this world for a time. Knowing that first and foremost, our citizenship is in heaven. That first and foremost, we belong to the kingdom of God serving the one true king. And so while we are here, our role is to be an ambassador for the king. That you and I exist to represent the king. To proclaim the truth of his word. And so everyone who is of the truth would hear his voice. That we are a people begging on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's what we're for. Not of this world. Pray with me and let's declare that through taking the Lord's Supper together. Let our young people get in here. All right, let's pray. Right there. Okay. I'm cool with that. Heavenly Father. Thank you so much that your kingdom is not of this world. Think about that your disciples on that day, as you're arrested, as you're delivered over to the hands of evil men to do what your, your will and your hand had predestined to occur, that uh, in this they are left thinking, what's next? Their heart is filled with grief and fear. And you, knowing the cup that would be befalling you, looked at Pilate and said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. You came for something bigger. You came for something greater. You came to make us citizens of heaven. And and so I pray that we serve you as king declaring, begging to the world that they would be reconciled to you, that they would place faith in your broken body and your shed blood. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. From 